Abrams later started a chain of plus-size clothing stores for women called... And I have to take a break before I say this name. I'm a big girl now. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Hello and welcome to History's Greatest Idiots, the podcast where me and my co-host Derek look back on the history of terrible decisions made by humans throughout time and hopefully pass on lessons for you so that you can learn from their mistakes and never ever repeat them again. But of course, who are we kidding? We're humans. We make mistakes all the time. Joining me, as always, is Derek. Derek, how are you doing today? How's your week been? Fantastic. It's been a good week. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's been a good week. What have you been up to? Picked up a new truck for uh, my son, doing his first vehicle thing. I mean, it's my truck, but I say he can <laughs> use it and tell his friends it's his. That's very exciting. Like, your first car, especially a truck, like, that's a big deal. You know, he, he when he eventually gets it, I mean, obviously, like you were saying, he won't get it right away. Um, that's going to be a big deal for him. You know, he can go driving with his friends. The added level of freedom with having a car when you're that age, it's such a massive moment, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It feels like it opens up the entire world. Like, yes. It just changes everything. It really does. And, like, he'll be able to explore things now and, and you know, be, be more independent and eat God knows how many drive through meals, um, which will litter the car, no doubt. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's the best way to live. My wife reminded me, um, she valeted the car for me. She was like, I valeted the car. I was like, what, you, you took it? And she's like, no, I've cleaned it. And there was sand in there that had been in there for years because I used to oh. take my dog for a walk on the beach when I lived in on Anglesey for years. And it was the same sand that was still there. So she cleaned it all out. She hoovered it, made everything really sparkling and clean. And then today... When she was out doing her, her rounds, um, she spotted a load of uh, compost for like two pound a bag. So she was like, oh, I'm getting all of that. So she came back with seven um, packets of compost that weigh, you know, huge amounts of uh, mass. And of course, one of them broke and there's now soil all over the back of my car. It was sand, now it's soil. It was sand, now it's soil. So we're progressing in the right direction. Um, I'm hoping one day it'll eventually turn into diamond. Because there that would go. be the real end result, really, wouldn't it? That anyway. would be the best possible outcome. <laughs> <laughs> it would, yes. Just a back seat full of diamonds. Um, so anyway, after last week, I say last week again, I'm repeating myself, we are going to be launching these all at the same time. Last week, we had uh, some very interesting uh, idiots. Can you remind me who yours was, please? Can you remember? Wow. I just <laughs> drew a complete blank. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I slightly did as well. I was like, was it King John the first? And then I remembered, no, it was the captain of the Costa Concordia who crashed the ship and cost the lives of thirty eight people, and then kind of disowned his part in the disaster and left the ship as quickly as possible with his mistress. So yeah, that was my that's, that's that right. was my guy. That was right and up mine, there. He was a brilliant idiot. See, and mine was just a, a lucky idiot. A uh, lucky Timothy Dexter. Okay. Yes, I remember made now. Horrible decisions at time and time again, and still came out rich. That's exactly right. Uh, he, yeah, I think we're going to have to. I'm going to have to write down the scores that we've given previous idiots because I can't remember who's leading. I know that Costa Concordia guy was quite high. Uh, I think King John might be leading the way at the moment because his entire life, as we've 
mentioned in the podcast, was essentially one fuck up after another, which cost right. his nation and his empire significant amounts of uh, you know gains and you know harm, and there was all sorts of damage done to the reputation. So I think he's probably leading the way. So obviously, it's up to us this week to see if we can find a new top idiot top of the rankings and um i've got a doozy i'm really excited to tell you but i would like and i'm sure everyone else would if you could start by telling us about your idiot and then we will score them after we find out who they are so please derek take it away all right my idiot this week is an inventor from america okay now, you know, many inventions throughout history have shaped our modern world, and, and some of them have led to some great advancements in the quality of life of all humankind. Absolutely. But, uh, some of them, not so much. Okay. The gentleman inventor I present today falls more towards the not-so-much side of things. Okay. He was born in May of 1889 in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Yeah, a that's family. a Pennsylvania name right there. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. But his family did have a history of invention, and his father was a notable inventor in the field of automobile tires. Oh, cool. Right. His grandfather was an inventor that that created the inserted tooth saw. Oh, that sounds terrifying. Yeah, tires and saws. They go (laughs) so well together. (laughs) It's no no surprise that he'd go on to be an inventor himself. Of course. And... Though born in Beaver Falls, he grew up in Columbus, which is good for me, because if I had to say Beaver Falls a couple more times, I'd be giggling like a (laughs) schoolgirl. He graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering from Cornell University in 1911, which, a smart move for somebody that wants to be an inventor, right? Absolutely, yeah. That's a smart move, going to, what was it, sorry, Cornell, did you say? Yes, he went to Cornell for mechanical engineering. Okay, so he went to the same... University as Andy Bernard in the office. Okay, cool. That's that's good. He's got a good start, you know, a reputable university, and, you know, he's graduated with a very good degree, so clearly this guy has got some ability or talent. Right. Starting out in good position. He, following his graduation, he goes back home and works as a draftsman and designer for the National Cash Register Company, which mm. was the first company to create a electric cash register oh wow okay that's a but, big achievement right it wasn't his invention though it okay. was uh charles kettering who oh. is a another inventor and chemist and mechanical engineer that he'll go on to work with during his first disastrous invention because he's got a, a couple inventions that not so good okay i can't wait to hear what they are um When Kettering hired him on as a mechanical engineer and chemist to the research team of Dayton Engineering Laboratories, uh, that was the research arm of General Motors or the Chevy-type vehicles here. Yeah, big company, Um, General Motors, my God. And and Kettering, at the same time as being on the research team, is marketing a small high-compression kerosene engine that was used to drive uh, home lighting systems on farms. Okay. But the engine that he was uh, marketing just knocked terribly. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a high compression, high, sure. uh, high burning, high temperature burning fuel. Right. So it gets that ping, 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 knock, knock, knock sound. Ugh, and yeah. our guy, being the go getter that he was, he set out to find a solution. 
Okay. And I discovered that the knocking was caused by the uneven burning of fuel mixture and kind of made a guess that I'm going to dye the fuel red because that'll absorb more heat and it'll make it knock less. Okay. Terrible physics, but <laughs> as luck would have it, he added ethyl iodine to the kerosene and there was less knock. Okay. So he continued his work towards finding a better solution until he was interrupted by a war and went to do oh. research for the U.S. war effort during World War One. Okay, well, that happens. You know, people feel the need to kind of contribute to the war effort and stuff. You know, I understand that. That's fine. So, so far, this guy isn't too bad, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see where things start to go downhill. That's on its way. But during the war, <laughs> he researched and developed um, improved aviation fuel by hydrogenating benzene. Benzene. Ooh, okay. Man, I am bad at some of these words. So That's you okay. Have to forgive me on that. That's fine. Um, it was his work with those fuels that made him a pioneer in the study of internal combustion engines, okay. which guided him to the discovery that would become his first dangerous and discover, uh, destructive invention. After the war, he focused his efforts back on solving the problem of engine knock, because it was obviously driving him nuts. That's that his life's work, isn't it? His raison d'etre. I've got to stop these engines knocking. Yeah. <laughs> so, he figured with his success from the original additive to the kerosene engine, and then the additives to the fuel for the the planes during the war, he would uh, make an additive that he could put into the fuel that would fix it. Okay. And he proceeded to do, do a ton of hit-and-miss research that did nothing. All right. Uh, no real success at all. So he began systematically working on uh, the periodic table until he discovered tetraethyl lead. Okay. Uh, and it worked pretty well at quieting the knock. Right. In, in 1921, him and his team found that the tetraethyl lead uh, at the right levels completely eliminated the engine knock. Oh, but wow. formed really harmful deposits in the engine. Okay, right. So you've got a trade-off there, which is obviously not exactly S ideal. Now he had a new problem to solve, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and he did so by uh, adding an additive to his additive. Okay. Um, this is, what is it, bromine. Bromine. Uh, it was ethylene bromine was okay. a compound that was added to the lead and allowed it to be completely expelled from the engine in the exhaust. Oh, dear. I think I know where this is going. Yeah, the the toxic uh, effects of lead were well known at the time. Yes. And at one point in time, he even had to withdraw from his research uh, to recover from lead poisoning. Jesus. Okay. And you'd think that would deter him from going forward with his invention. Yeah, but there's it, a lesson there, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> you would hope that, that he would learn the lesson, and, and he did mm. not. Okay. Because he goes on to become the vice president of the Ethel Gasoline Company. Okay. And he started to promote his new leaded gasoline to oh, the public. No. And he, he, he named it Ethel, <laughs> Ethylene, so he could avoid uh, any mention of lead in Les. the reports. Yeah. or advertising. Of course. <clears throat> and he was successful in kind of hiding how dangerous it could be because in 1922, the American Chemical Society awarded him the Nichols Medal for the uh, use of anti-knock compounds in motor fuels. Because wow. he convinced everybody, including himself, that uh, what he did was uh, safe and not going to post a threat to public health at all. 
But he was so, so wrong. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy, was he wrong. My God. (laughs) Turns out the use of leaded gasoline that he invented released large quantities of lead into the atmosphere all over the world. Yes. And that high atmospheric lead level has been linked to some serious long-term health problems like neurological impairment in kids. And uh, was it... They even linked it to uh, violence and criminality in the cities, which is super bad stuff. (laughs) Yeah, that's really bad. If you're changing the psychological makeup of entire cities, then yeah, that's really bad. Yeah, he didn't stop there with the lead uh, poisoning in the atmosphere, though. He had another invention in him. Okay. He went back to to his trusty periodic table to create a more silent but deadly solution to the dangerous refrigerants of the time. Oh, no. Yeah, the existing refrigerants used compounds that were flammable and toxic, or both, but he found a way to synthesize a colorless gas called dichlorodifluoromethane. Okay. Which is super ridiculously hard to say, so I'm not going to say it again. It was... Uh, we can call given the it trademark the compound or something. Freon oh, no. is, is what they, they they made, and it was used as a refrigerant, but it was also used for uh, aerosol spray propellants and things yep. like hairspray and asthma inhalers, because it wasn't toxic, Air conditioning you know? as well? Isn't Freon in air conditioning or something? Or was yep. it? Yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, they were thought to be safe. Oh, no. At the time, and non-toxic, but the mixture known as CFCs oh my God. was dis- discovered in 1974 to uh, be destroying the ozone layer. Oh my God! Which in turn leads to the reduced natural protection from UV rays and skin cancer and all that good Planet stuff. Planet death. Yep, the survival of the Earth as a whole was put in in jeopardy through his inventions and the wow. extensive use of his compounds. Wow! And uh, he he had one more invention in him. What could he? What is it? Is it like a leaking atomic bomb at this point? What is this? Yeah, he's killed the planet so far. <laughs> his uh, his last invention is going to just prove deadly to himself. Oh, thank God. Uh, I shouldn't so, say that, but bloody hell. <laughs> I mean, it's better him than us. At this point, yeah, think. because God knows who he's taking with him, you know? God. So, so many, I think, yeah. over the years. He's still taking people with him. Exactly. But later in life, he contracted polio and was severely disabled and didn't have use of his legs. Okay. So his last invention was to help with his mobility, and he devised an elaborate system of ropes and pulleys to help lift him out of the bed. Okay. I mean, th- this is like Rube Goldberg kind of levels of, I'm going to make a yeah, contraption to help me get around. Turning himself into a marionette. Basically, he's his own puppet master, essentially, yeah. <laughs> In 1944, while trying to use his device, he became entangled and dies of strangulation. Wow. Okay. So. I mean, uh, did he or did he just invent, like, autoerotic asphyxiation? Is that what he did? (laughs) Did he invent the way that ended up killing David Carradine? Is that what he did? The old stroke and choke? Is that what he invented? By his bed with his pants around his ankles, I suppose. That might have been it. Oh, he accidentally hung himself. No, he didn't. (laughs) There was no accident about this. Wow. But at least he was done killing the rest of the world. Fuck yes. And this guy uh, has been noted as uh, being called, and I quote, uh, having more impact on the atmosphere than any other single organism in Earth's history. Yeah. And having an almost instinct for the regrettable that was almost uncanny. Yes, I would agree. He was, 
He was an American inventor, mechanical engineer, chemist, and destroyer of worlds, <laughs> trying to do good and solve problems with extremely unfortunate results. Wow. A man named Thomas Midgley Jr., whose inventions landed on Time's, Time Magazine's list of the 50 worst inventions of all time, and yep. in my opinion, puts him in strong running for uh, one of history's greatest idiots. I mean, oh, well, that's breathtaking. I mean, we've we've heard of people that, like John, cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of his countrymen, or um, the guy who let Genghis Khan get super angry at his population and wipe out like over a million people. But this is like, we're talking generations of destruction with this guy. You know, he invented, real staying power. Uh, yeah, <laughs> real like legacy idiocy from this guy. It's, it's, it's frightening to think how many people are dead or mutilated or disabled as a result of the inventions that, or, or the kind of discoveries and combinations that this guy came up with. It's interesting, when you were talking about um, the lead, first of all, my, my first thought is, the world's known about lead poisoning because Roman emperors were notoriously mad, not because they were inbred, like the British aristocracy, but... <laughs> <laughs> but because they all drank from wine that was brewed in giant lead um, containers. So they got the lead infused with the wine, and that's why you've got an emperor, you know, fiddling while the city burns around him, or if that's even true. But that's why the majority of Roman emperors were mad. It's because all of the wine they drank was full of lead. So, uh, And that's why the common folk weren't. Because they couldn't afford the expensive wine, so they just drank, drank like cheap plonk, you know, that wasn't full of lead. So that's amazing. In terms of scoring, the guy that created CFCs and has opened a hole in the atmosphere and also led to the lead poisoning of multiple generations, he's got to be a yeah. 90, right? <gasps> he's got to be oh. 90. This guy, and I, I would love to know if, if we ever get a following and there are any statisticians out there who know about these things, I would love to know the cumulative total of damage that this guy has done to the planet in terms of either deaths or catastrophic environmental disasters because we've this is a single person that is responsible potentially for the deaths of hundreds of millions of people that well, is do frightening. you count the deaths from increased violence and criminality yeah. from the lead poisoning that's frightening so you add to that too of not just you know people dying from skin cancer from the hole in the ozone layer exactly and the environmental damage that causes <laughs> it's it's amazing so. amazing to think that one human being can have this kind of effect and in, the interesting thing he managed to trick a bunch of like boards and scientists into seeing him as some sort of great inventor some sort of great leader how did he get surely there must have been people around him who would have been like you've put lead in the atmosphere we know this is bad yet somehow he ends up as vice president of General Motors, or wh whichever uh, company was the, that was. Yeah, the ethyl gasoline company. But oh what he did was the, the use of bromine to break it down so that it comes out into the the exhaust, he was selling it as it, the particles are far too small to even be dangerous. He, he put a bottle of leaded gasoline under his nose and kept it there for... 60 seconds and was saying see it's not harmful and i imagine that's how he got lead poisoning at, at that one point but um 
he he tricked him by just saying like the particles are going to be too small for us to absorb or do anything. Wow! And somehow they they fell for it. I mean, they they hadn't looked at you know mercury and fish accumulating over time and lead doing being a metal doing the same thing. Oh, that is and and the the damage it's done to the water systems in America and the water table and the food table and oh my god. Other than the creator of plastics, I can't think of anyone else who has had this kind of environmental impact on the planet. Just the one person. That's really frightening. I mean, we talk about leaders of industry who need to do more to protect the environment. This guy invented the problems, more or less. Yep. Um that's frightening. I'm I'm Totally comfortable in giving this guy a 90 and making him a, the leader because there's, I mean, I can't think of too many people in the world and definitely the history of the planet that are ever going to get anywhere close to this guy in terms of absolute stupidity and, or in his case, willful ignorance um, because we'll he see, knew we'll that see it was how dangerous. fracking turns out though. Well, <laughs> mine, I, I should let you know, my guy is not as dangerous or has had the impact on the world that uh, your gentleman, what was his name? I'm sorry, I've forgotten his name already. Thomas Midgley Jr. Thomas Midgley Jr. That's, um, yeah, it's, it, this guy has definitely not had the impact on the world that your guy does. In the world that I occupy, so I have a number of jobs, you may know, proofreader, I do podcast host coaching. I do lots of different writing. One of the things I write for is a wrestling website and magazine called Inside the Ropes. I cover wrestling for a living. I've done that for years. I've always been into wrestling. And part of the reason I've always been into wrestling, it's it, yes, the action is amazing and characters and all of that stuff. But a lot of the stuff that draws me in apart from the storylines, is the fascinating backstage politics and maneuvering and hiring that goes on. Because it came from a carnival background, it came from the travelling carnival thing, and they are carnies, wrestling promoters. Yeah, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. After the Civil War, when carnival started doing the rounds, that's where wrestling was born. Um, Was it like a bunch of the strongmen get together and throw each other around a bit? Well, here's the con. This is the best part. This is the con that would go around from town. So there were two cons. There was there would be a one where the world champion of the <laughs> the carnival would be like this um like a small guy who would like you know hold the belt and stuff and then there'd be another guy in front of him who was massive and really strong and really powerful. And then the promoter would say if anybody in the audience can come out here and beat my champion, I will give you $100, or whatever it was back in, like, 1880, whatever. Oh. And what had happened was, local idiot in the crowd would be like, I'll I'll take on. He goes, whoa, 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 before you get to my champion, I want you to prove your mettle. I want you to wrestle my toughest man, and that would be the big guy. So the big guy would work with this person, and he'd, like, deliberately sell the blows to make them look worse, and then he'd, like, he'd lose right so the promoter would be like oh god he'd like admonish him fake admonish him in front of the crowd so this guy's deliberately taken a fall from whatever pathetic offense the the local drunk can put up right and then (laughs) uh, he's like right if you think okay i i'm gonna let you have my champion now but i want money on the table i want you to put money down and the whole crowd would come in with loads and loads of money and they'd just be like, oh, yeah, our guy's going to beat the champion. Look, the champion's like half the size of that guy. No problem. They put, you know, hundreds of dollars on the table. And what they didn't know is that the champion was like a shooter. The terms morphed into mixed martial arts these days. But back in the oh, day, okay. it meant they were proficient. There's another word for it called hooking 
all hookers, but that that's taken okay. on a different meaning. Basically, they were proficient in breaking people's limbs or knocking them out. Yeah, really proficient. So the fight would start between local drunk, who's now f- full of confidence and possibly even more beer, and this like five foot eight inch mustachioed guy who just takes him down and then just snaps his arm or pops his shoulder wow. out or something like that. And then they take the money and leave town. Um, insult to injury. Exactly. The other con would be they'd have a plant in the crowd and the plant would be like he'd just beat the first guy and then the champion would finish him off and they'd all leave but none of them would get injured and it developed from there where it's like well we're working already you know we're 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 kind of faking everything so why don't we just like stay in one place instead of running from town to town why don't we go inside this venue why don't we book this champion against that champion and that's how it went on for years there were still instances where wrestlers would shoot on each other deliberately and like try and screw each other over that's why generally the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance World Champion, first of all had to put down a deposit of $25,000 before he became champion so that if um, he got screwed over or if anyone tried to injure him or if he tried to run off with the belt, they'd keep the deposit. But also, pretty much every NWA World Champion up until probably Ric Flair in the 80s was a legitimate shooter. Woo! Um, (laughs) They could all go. All the way at like Gorgeous George back in the 50s when wrestling finally came on television, he was still quite handy even though he was like a flamboyant dandy. Like, if he needed to, he could rough people up. And that's typically what wrestlers were. Yes, it's fixed and all that stuff, but even modern wrestlers, like, if you met, like, Brock Lesnar... And you were like, you you work in a fixed sport. He could beat the shit out of almost anybody you put in front of him. Oh, yeah. No. (laughs) It's not somebody that you'd want to run run your mouth to. Fixed, faked or not, the man's an athlete. This is a guy who was UFC champion while he had undiagnosed diverticulitis. That's that's how tough he was. Yeah. He had like 30% strength because his body was basically destroying itself. Um, So I wanted to focus on what I know apart from history, which is the wrestling industry. I wanted to look to the wrestling industry for idiots. And thankfully, because it was founded by carnies and has been populated by (laughs) a whole bunch of idiots ever since then, there was a wide selection of characters. Oh my God. (laughs) Characters is one word for it. Lunatics is another. And I found one. So I'll just give you my opening paragraph. The wrestling industry is littered with names that either came into the business with good intentions and ended up going bankrupt, or con men who screwed as many people over before they were either run out of the business, were arrested, or died. Today's story is about a man... Yeah. Today's story is about a man who epitomised both of those things and a whole load more insane items. I'm talking about a gentleman called Herb Abrams. Herbert... Okay. (laughs) You wait. You fucking wait. Herbert (laughs) Charles Abrams was born on July 9th, 1955, in Queens, New York, the oldest child of Sonia and Abram Abrams, which... Oh, there you go. Original name. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to forget that anytime soon. His father, Abram Abrams, was a contracted salesman of uh, women's dresses, and he actually employed 42 workers at his Manhattan office as of 1949. So he was... Herb was actually raised in a decent family. Like, they had money. 
They weren't scraping anything together. His dad was a major employer in Manhattan, so it's unlikely he had a difficult childhood in terms of finances. You know, whether we, we don't know much about Herb's childhood, but what we do know is that his dad was doing all right. So, yeah, you know, they had a decent... Yeah, they had a decent life in that aspect. As I said, not a huge amount is known about his early life until 1976, when he's 21 years old, when he approached... My colleague, legendary wrestling uh, writer Bill Apter, while Bill was shooting at taking photos of, not literally shooting, Bill's not like John Wilkes Booth or anything, Uh, (laughs) he was shooting photographs of superstar Billy Graham on the streets of New York City back when Billy Graham was a huge name in the wrestling world. Uh, Herb, which was his chosen nickname, along with his other chosen nickname, Mr. Electricity. Wait, you can't have two chosen nicknames. Oh, he did. you got to choose one. <laughs> he had a bunch of others that people probably called him behind his back as well. But, um, oh, good. Uh, Herb told Bill Apter to spread the word that any wrestlers who made an appearance at his father's clothing store in Flushing, uh, Flushing Queens, would be allowed to take dresses home for their wives as compensation. And if he'd known anything about wrestlers at the time, he probably would have added in and your mistresses as well. (laughs) Some of them had a girl in every town. Abrams moved to Los Angeles and started his first business called Network 9 Limited in 1983. I couldn't find out a lot of information about that. It didn't seem to last very long a theme that is going to be quite common in this story. Okay. Abrams later started a chain of plus-size clothing stores for women called, and I have to take a break before I say this name, I'm a big girl now. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. His his uh, stores, plural, was called I'm a big girl now, which was launched in uh, 1988, and Jesus Christ. Wow. I'm a big girl now. Man. Who would ever be seen going into a shop called that? I don't I would think like a twelve year old and it would be well, I don't nah, that's messed up. That's weird. That is that's almost oh, offensive. Yeah. I mean that's that's the first I mean not the first. It's the maybe the second or third element of weirdness. It gets much weirder. Abrams okay. founded the Universal Wrestling Federation, the UWF, in nineteen ninety. There had previously been another UWF which put on amazing wrestling shows. Uh, but the previous owner of that name, Cowboy Bill Watts, who would go on to book WCW in the nineties hadn't trademarked the name for some reason so and they were eventually bought out and conglomerated into jim crockett promotions so um and a load of people left uwf they either became independents or went to the wwf or went to wcw one person who left and went on the independence was a character called the dingo warrior who eventually became the ultimate warrior and there we go yeah and his then tag team partner went on from the UWF to work in Jim Crockett Promotions, which eventually became WCW, was called Sting. It was another big name uh-huh. in wrestling history. There you go. Yeah. So Bill Watts didn't trademark the name UWF, so Herb was like, that's mine now. I'm taking that. That's a good thing, because the way he names stuff, that would have been a, that would have probably been horrible. It wouldn't have been very successful. <laughs> I'm a big wrestler now. It would not have worked. Yes, so he stole that, and that's the first instance of... Herb Abrams being dodgy as fuck. Herb received $1 million from Sports Channel America to produce a weekly television program called UWF Fury Hour. Fury Hour is what I call uh, whenever I visit the toilet. Um, (laughs) And the entertainment is more uh, when I go to the toilet than their TV shows were. 
Um, in August 1990, during a press conference announcing the UWF's launch, Herb was asked how he expected to succeed in the wrestling business. With no prior experience in it whatsoever, Herb responded with uh, this phrase, What they're looking for, I have. And that's the Hollywood glitz. So this this okay. five foot seven inch balding gentleman is apparently flowing with Hollywood glitz, and we will find out much more later. Herb ran his first television tapings at Reseda County Club in Reseda, California, that fall. The venue's owner later sued Abrahams uh, for money owed. Abrams soon gained a reputation for chronically failing to pay venue owners and even his own wrestlers, which is that, a... That seems common in that yeah. industry, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's just a wash um, at various levels with con men and hucksters. And uh, I love the wrestling industry, but there is a, an underbelly which is colossal and grim and horrible. So that's the problem with the industry, and it's never going to go away. Herb Abrams' roster at the UWF included established names such as Ravishing Rick Rude, Billy Jack Haynes, father of Randy Orton, Cowboy Bob Orton Jr., Brian Blair, a very young Mick Cactus Jack Foley, Colonel De Beers, Dan Spivey, David Sammartino, Don Morocco, Ivan Kolov, Ken Patera, Paul Orndorff, and the biggest name of the lot in terms of actual wrestling ability at the time, a prime Dr. Death Steve Williams. Incidentally, Steve Williams, Steve Austin's actual real name is Steve Williams, Stone Cold Steve Austin. They're like, you can't be Steve Williams. There's already a Steve Williams. Where are you from? I'm from Austin. Well, you're Steve Austin now. Aha. <laughs> Makes sense. It does. And also the, the $7 million man, Steve Austin, and all that. So... Um, he also had top homegrown talent, including Wild Thing Steve Ray, who I've I've never heard of until I watched a documentary, and uh, another person called Cutie Pie Louis Spicoli. Louis Spicoli would go on to be um, a quite big name on independent wrestling. He hired legendary wrestler Bruno Sammartino and legendary wrestling manager Captain Lou Albano as his commentators. And I can't think of two commentators with more contrasting personalities than the soft-spoken, earnest, immigrant hero Bruno Sammartino, who was the wrestling champion of the 60s and 70s, and the borderline insane, frantic, coked-up musings of Captain Lou Albano. Um, See, I'd watch that. You would, wouldn't you, <laughs> just for the dichotomy. It's kind of like having Kanye West and Mark Zuckerberg on commentary. Exactly. You know, just one person is completely off the wall, and you don't know what they're going to say, and the other person is a robot. So, <laughs> <laughs> so on to the UWF, this version, anyway. The promotion held a taping in New York City at the New York Penta, I think that's right, in January 1991 that became plagued with legal issues. The World Wrestling Federation sent cease and desist orders to the UWF after the Honky Tonk Man, (laughs) sorry, I just love that name, and Ravishing Rick Rude appeared on camera. Both had recently walked out of the WWF, but were still under contract to the company. I don't know how Herb didn't just check with them. He's like, guys, are you still under contract? Because legally, that's a mistake if I put you on TV. He's just like, ah, fuck it, you're famous. Get on television. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what could go wrong? It should be noted that around about this time, Herb's slight recreational use of cocaine um, <laughs> turned into a full-time mission to turn himself into Lord Voldemort by basically taking as much cocaine as he could until his nose exploded off his face. Um, oh, man. He, his drug habit 
cost him literally millions of dollars and led to him becoming so paranoid that he'd occasionally have massive freakouts in hotels that would scare everyone around him, this being wrestlers, and also the numerous (laughs) prostitutes he'd hire to come and party with him. Wow. Yeah. So this, (laughs) this is Herb Abrams in 1991, coked out of his mind starting a terrible wrestling promotion with a bunch of talented people that aren't being used properly and not paying them. So, do you think he's still alive? Can I ask you now? Um, well, I mean, with the amount of coke and... Uh, oh, yeah, he made Aerosmith look like monks. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Uh, yeah, yeah, you'd be right. But we'll get to the, the manner of his death. It's the stuff of legend. A wrestling manager who worked with him at the time, a guy called Rick Bassman, who also worked with Disney... At the same time, he was like on the side. He was called Rick Golden, I think it was. So it's like a kind of a he's he's moonlighting as a wrestling manager, but also working for, you know, Mickey Mouse Corporation at the same time. Describes an incident where he was called up to Herb's hotel room. The second I get there, Brian Blair comes off the elevator and starts knocking on Herb's door as well as me. The door cracks open, and you see these wild eyes looking out around the corridor. He invites us in, slams the door behind us, bolts it, and throws a bag of cocaine on the bed, probably two eight balls worth. Then we both yeah, we both said, Herb, what's the problem? And he said, nothing. I just needed someone to party with. <laughs> Good guy. What? Thanks, dude. Yeah, thank you for the eight ball or two. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's going to resonate with our audience. I don't know if people are... Like, eight balls have probably gone out of fashion now. That's a lot of cocaine. For even someone who's a cokehead, two eight balls of cocaine, that's, that's like, a week's worth, surely. Um, wow. Anyway, this is going to come into play later on, so remember the whole cocaine thing. Abrams eventually hired a gentleman called Howard Brody, who was the owner of Ladies Major League Wrestling, to help him expand the UWF into the Florida market in 1991. At the time... I don't really know what happened with television. I think it's because wrestling had kind of fallen in its esteem from the 1950s. But there were like regional markets and everyone would have their own like little television shows in different markets. And they would do them from studios and stuff, each regional territory until Vince McMahon and Jim Crockett started expanding. And it became like two or three promotions dominating the entire country. But there were still like local television companies that would like we'll give you an hour for a wrestling show and they put it on whatever so um he was trying to expand into these markets in florida following several house shows which is just like local shows with no cameras or anything and one television taping at universal studios in florida brody was entrusted with finding a venue for the promotion's first ever pay-per-view event in june 1991 Brody, being a smart man, knowing that it was their first pay-per-view, they hadn't really done much on TV, they had this great roster of people, but no money for advertising, suggested the Odium Expo Center in Chicago, which hosts holds about 1,500 people, something like that. Abrams, though, insisted on holding Beach Brawl, the name of the pay-per-view, at the Manatee Civic Center, amazing name, in yeah. Palmetto, Florida, which held 4,000 seats. So That's bigger, I guess. Significantly bigger. And he must have been confident because he's like, no, 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 1,500, my God. We need to fill those seats. We need it to look like a big crowd. So 4,000 seats, that's fine. The pay-per-view was a disaster. 
in both attendance and pay-per-view buy rates. Only 500 nice. people showed up, most of whom didn't pay to get in. They were comps. <laughs> Something like 200 people paid, which is pathetic. And My it would have been like $10. Tonight. So, yeah, yikes. That's nothing. And the official pay-per-view buy rate was 0.1, which... At the time, given that 1991, it was pay-per-view was starting to pick up, but it definitely wasn't in every home in America at the time. It's about 20,000 people paid uh, to watch that at home. So, you know, let's say you've charged $15. That's far less than is needed to cover the cost of putting on the pay-per-view, all the technical stuff, paying your talent, the venue, catering, lighting, sound, all your television crew, and never mind feeding yourself and paying your mortgage and, you know, looking after your family and stuff. So basically, the show was a massive loss. Yeah, it sounds, sounds horrible. Not a great start. As <laughs> your first pay-per-view loses a massive amount. It's not WrestleMania 1. Like, you're not making shitloads of money. Right. As the UWF's head booker, Herbert... Okay, so I should explain this for people unfamiliar with uh, wrestling. Usually when you buy a wrestling promotion, you don't also book it. Booking is like coming up with the storylines, telling the wrestlers what they're going to do, deciding who wins what championship, letting out like the storylines for the year, and planning like the direction of the promotion. Obviously, the, the owner will have some input in that, but it's not like they control the book all the time, which is what Herb Abrams did. He was the head booker. He had a final decision. So you've basically got a guy who's terrible with money making all the financial decisions in the long run, which is... Seems smart. <laughs> yeah. It seems to be working so far. It definitely wasn't working. Abrams <laughs> was often criticised for the promotion's inconsistent storylines and matches that lacked clean finishes. So you would always have a disqualification or a count-out, and people would just be like, oh, God, again, Herb... For the first 11 episodes of Fury Hour, he was also the on-screen commentator alongside Bruno Sammartino, for which the Wrestling Observer newsletter voted him worst television announcer of 1990. We should also point out Herb was coked out of his brain while he was doing commentary. <laughs> so you've gone from Captain Lou Albano, who has natural energy and a little bit of cocaine, to Herb Abrams, who is insane, full of cocaine, and Bruno Sammartino, who's been in the wrestling industry for 40 years at this point, going, what am I doing here? Uh, let's see. Prior to uh, earning this dubious distinction of worst television announcer of 1990, Abrams had used a jobber on Fury Hour, uh, a someone who loses to everyone, named Davey Meltzer, which is a deliberate jab at journalist and wrestling historian Dave Meltzer, who is Wrestling Observer Newsletter's editor-in-chief and publisher. Basically, at the time, there was no internet. There were the very few magazines, and the magazines that were around, they maintained kayfabe, so they pretended that wrestling was real. The Wrestling Observer newsletter was where people went for real stories. Like, oh, this person's the new booker of this place, and this person, this is a great match, and this person's been busted for having drugs, and blah, blah, blah. all real. So they, they did away with kayfabe. So he deliberately pissed yeah. off the only person who controlled hardcore wrestling at the time. So, great move. Good idea. Great move, Herb. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Abrams was replaced on commentary by uh, Craig DeGeorge, but stayed on screen as an interviewer. So I, I guess he's doing coke before the interviews now. Following Beach Brawl, 
Abram ran Abrams ran one final television taping at the War Memorial Auditorium before running out of fresh footage for Fury Hour. He just he'd stopped producing wrestling at that point. So he struck a deal with uh, this guy Brody to use footage from the Ladies Major League Wrestling to fulfill his content uh, creation obligations to Sports Channel America before eventually getting his contract cancelled in 1991 because they're like we're paying you to produce television and you're giving us second-hand footage, so that's not what we paid for. They were paying for his coke. <laughs> yes, uh, we are paying for your mortgage, sir, not your nose habits. The company aired a live television special called Blackjack Brawl on September 23rd, 1994, on Sports Channel America. This is after he's been cancelled. It was UWF's last major attempt to secure a television deal and survive in the world of professional wrestling, which, by the way, by 1994, was in the absolute doldrums. Hulk Hogan had disappeared, the the steroid scandal had broken, wrestling was in the absolute pits, and Herb was ready and waiting for everyone to join him at that point. He thought he could really recapture and maybe get a massive TV deal, so he held the event at the MGM Grand Garden Arena, in Las Vegas, Nevada, which has a capacity of 17,000 seats and costs a ridiculous amount of money to rent out for the evening. I have to ask you, Derek, how many people do you think showed up to this enormous event put on in one of the most famous venues on the west coast of America? Well, you know, I want to say that it had to be better than the first one at the Manatee Center in the middle of nowhere, Florida, just by sheer population and visitors. Exactly. Like, you put up a couple of billboards in Vegas, you know, maybe you do, like, a promotional thing on local television, you get some of the big-name wrestlers that you got there, you're bound to get people showing up, right? So what would you put as a number on this 17,000-seater? He's got to have at least, what, like, 2000 at the the very least just going off of makes sense drunk people wandering in yeah from the- drunk people people who have lost their money and they're like oh you you can be comped you can come in because you know he was famous for his comps at this point so people would just i presumably just show up because he probably let them in so let's get to it like its predecessor beach brawl the event um saw very low attendances of 600 fans Oh my. Half of whom were comps. <laughs> so only 300 people paid to get in to the MGM Grand with 17,000 seats um, and received negative responses uh, from critics and audiences for poor quality, god awful matches, nonsense booking, and dire commentary, which was again being provided by a coked out of his mind Abrams. The event, this is unbelievable to me. As a wrestling fan, this is. Um, this is so stupid. The event featured nine championship matches, with two vacant championships being decided at the event, and seven new championships being con- contested at the main event. So instead of your world champion being the focal point and the fact that he has a belt, or your tag team champions being a focus, everybody had a fucking championship. So that means that nobody was special, and nobody yeah, cared. Yeah, it seems like a lot. That's a lot. Just think about <laughs> the amount of metal he's had to like get together to make these fucking belts. I wonder if he paid the belt designer. He's like a job lot for this. Like, look, if you make me nine, can I pay you less? (laughs) 
that's that's why there was so many. Exactly. He's like, God, can I just get four more for the same price? Um, <laughs> so stupid. The event was headlined by a UWF World Heavyweight Championship match between defending champion Steve Williams and Sid Vicious, who were going to be Psycho Sid and you know Sid Justice and all those things. Um, and this would stand as the promotion's final ever event. That was it. They were fucked. They were in the hole to the tune of millions of dollars. Herb was completely out of control at this point. He was doing cocaine every single basically hour of the day. He didn't sleep much. His friends were really concerned about him. He was His health was declining, and he owed a lot of very shady people money. However, by 1996, Herb seemed to have turned a corner and was sobering up. He was back in the office. He was working. Some of the former people that had been with him were kind of encouraged, and he looked healthy. But then one day, in late July, he went missing. Uh, this was nothing new for Herb, and a lot of his friends and family just believed he'd fallen off the wagon. So they were like, oh, I guess we've got to start again. But this is Herb. He'll disappear for two days, and he'll come in with a hangover or something. Herb Abrams died... On July 23rd, 1996, at St. Vincent's Hospital in Manhattan, New York, of a heart attack while in police custody. Let me tell you about how he got into police custody now. Before his death... Oh, fuck, I can't believe I'm saying this. Before his death, police had found Abrams in his Manhattan office, naked, covered in baby oil and cocaine... (laughs) Destroying furniture with a baseball bat because he thought there were uh, listening bugs planted in the furniture and also chasing a group of prostitutes out of the office with the baseball bat. Good God. So, (laughs) Full out coked out Benny Hill. Yes. It was Benny Hill on coke with baby oil and a baseball bat. Paranoid Benny Hill as well. So uh, let me just run that through again. He was naked when the police arrived. He was wielding a baseball bat, this tiny man. He was covered in baby oil and cocaine, which I assume had made some sort of paste on his body. (laughs) I don't know how those two mix. Um, And he was destroying furniture because he thought, like, someone was listening in to him because he owed them money. Semi-naked prostitutes were, like, fleeing the office because he was trying to kill them because he thought they were robbing him. (laughs) It's amazing. Accounts on this have varied uh, somewhat, the details. Because some people are like, well, there weren't prostitutes. Or some people said, oh, it wasn't baby oil, it was Vaseline. So it's like... That's better. <laughs> yeah, that's slightly better. It's less sleazy, isn't it? It's like, oh, maybe he, he had like a, an owie and he was trying to make it better uh. instead of like, he's covered in baby oil. So even if half of that stuff is true, it's probably one of the most insane deaths in modern history. Up there with Dee Dee Allen, who sure. OD'd in one oh, of the yeah. weirdest ways. I can't remember what it was, but it was basically a rampage of drugs. Yeah, straight off the stage after a show. Yeah, right? straight off the stage, rampaging through the streets. This tiny little man, high out of his mind. Basically, Herb outdid him by including prostitutes, baby oil, cocaine, a baseball bat, and a fear of listening devices in that whole scenario. <laughs> Abrams' autopsy showed that he had cocaine and Valium in his system when he died. He was buried in New Montefiero Cemetery in West Babylon, New York. Herb Abrams' ex-girlfriend said that during the last few years of his life, he'd experienced paranoia while high on cocaine. Allegedly, um, Abrams owed various people 
hundreds of thousands of dollars and insisting on destroying furniture to find non-existent bugging devices um, constantly. Wow. This is Herb Abrams. I'm going to end it here with a couple of quotes from people that knew him and worked with him. And it's just, it's an amazing life and an amazing story. So Dan Spivey, who was one of the wrestlers who worked with Herb, said, wow, what a weird guy that was, man. (laughs) This is a fucking wrestler. I have to point this out. A wrestler thinks this guy is weird. I stayed away from him because I heard that he was running girls in and out of his room in New York, taking out credit cards and then cancelling them. All kinds of crazy shit. The honky-tonk man had this to say. He did start to bounce checks. In fact, I was telling a story the other night that he had two bank accounts. He paid Andre the Giant, who made one appearance at the UWF, Killer Kowalski and Bruno Sammartino out of one checking account. Then he'd pay me and the rest of the boys at the second checking account. When we get home to cash the checks on Monday at the bank, they'd tell us that the account was closed weeks ago. Dodgy as fuck. And when asked by the documentary film crew for uh, Vice's Dark Side of the Ring, which featured him on an episode recently, which I have to say, if you get a chance to watch it, it's fascinating. Watch it. It's called um, Cocaine and Cowboy Boots, the Herb Abrams story. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When asked by this documentary crew uh, what he thought Herb would be doing, if he was still alive, Mick Foley simply replied with time, (laughs) which is fucking amazing. And if you watch the documentary, he and the interviewer just burst out laughing because yeah, Herb will be in prison right now. Um, So the dark side of the ring episode I mentioned, um, which aired in May of 2020, you can find it. It's vice who've produced it. It was the third highest rated episode in the show's history. And that means that it literally outdrew all of Herb Abrams' television shows and live attendances ever put on this one episode about his life story, which I've got to be honest, it's fascinating, but it's also a massive, like, do not do this with your life story. Yeah, well, so that's her I mean, at least he went out on top, a success, his last thing so far. Yeah, uh, Mr. Electricity. <laughs> it was just... Wow. I I can't even begin. There are characters in wrestling, obviously. There have always been really interesting stories. Some of them are still alive, like the Iron Sheik, who is a fucking fascinating yeah. character, is somehow still alive. But Herb Abrams, you talk about like the light that burns twice as bright, burns half as long and stuff. This guy was insane, and I'd love to know your thoughts. Absolutely. I I think that might be one of the most crazy insane deaths ever and the dude out carnied carnies yes. like carnies are looking at that guy like man stay away from i him. know it's like you've heard of carnies and you've heard of issues and like con men and hucksters and stuff there's i don't think there are too many people crazy enough to be around this guy unless they're wrestlers who are fucking enormous and terrifying anyway so right well just from sheer insanity and mass quantities of impressive amounts of cocaine, oh, I, I think mainly because like he really just screwed people out of money oh, yeah. and didn't do so much of the killing or deathing. Yes, um, still just from insanity, he's got to be up there at least like say I got it seventy eight. Seventy eight, I will take because like you were saying, this guy is like I have a dream. I want to be a wrestling promoter and a commentator, and an interviewer, and a booker. And 
I want to take all the money that my father has like made and all the money that I've somehow got and just fucking blow it. And like it's and it's it. like Brewster's millions if Brewster was just a massive fucking idiot, basically. Yeah. So yeah, I will wow. take seventy eight. I think that's a good score. But that death, naked, covered in baby oil and cocaine, chasing prostitutes around with a baseball bat while destroying your furniture, that's amazing. And take out the furniture, and I got a new new thing on my bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> like of all the ways to die. That's the one thing, like, oh, this is Herb Abrams. Oh, he's a wrestling promoter. What's he famous for? And then everyone relays the story of his death, and they're like, yeah, that'll do. Yeah, that gives you a picture yeah. of who he was at the time. Jesus. Wow. That was a good that, one. I love, I love the Herb Abrams story. I mean, I have to say about Vice's Dark Side of the Ring, it is quite a depressing watch at times because it takes the darkest, the most upsetting, the most tragic, the most weird stories from wrestling history and condenses them into like a 45 minute episode and you know it can be quite depressing for a wrestling fan to watch this stuff we all know it exists but it exists in a huge world of like decades of activity and multiple promotions and stuff but the herb abrams episode it's basically goodfellas pretty much just like insanity and cocaine everywhere so I really enjoyed researching that. As tragic as it is that Herb is dead, and apparently a lot of people, even though he owed them thousands of dollars, really loved the guy because he was just mad. And it's the kind of guy who, like, when he wasn't coked out of his brain, he was kind of fun to be around. Like, Mick Foley talks quite highly of him. Like, he had a bit of a soft spot for him. And Mick Foley is, like, a three-time New York Times bestseller now, author very intelligent guy he he thought herb was a decent guy he just had massive problems it tends to it happen. does madness and genius doesn't it? And all I, that. I mean i don't want to call him a genius because he fucked up constantly but like he had something I'm about a big him. girl now yeah i'm a big girl now <laughs> fucking hell but like he had something about him that drew people to him so like people even though he's like this kind of weird looking guy receding hairline massive coat problems like people find him interesting and they want to spend time with him so that's gotta be worth something and i'm really glad that we got to tell this little story and also thank you for telling me your story about the guy who's basically doomed us all pretty much yep (laughs) he invented the atmospheric death (laughs) he invented the uh, killer sun rays that somehow found a way through thank you uh crazy man so we've had one person that's doomed the planet and another person who's the kind of the poster child of excess in the 80s and 90s so a wonderful week thank you derek for so much did you enjoy these stories oh yeah absolutely and i hope that uh, the folks listening are like wow (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, after hearing about Herb Abrams and the guy who's doomed the planet, wow is a, a, an appropriate response, I think. Um, so thank you all for listening. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Um, we're, we're getting so much out of this. I'm enjoying myself so much. Uh, I'm sure you are as well, Derek. Oh, yeah, I'm feeling much less... Uh stupid <laughs> with all the research that i'm doing i'm learning a lot yeah you learn so many fascinating fascinating things about history and about the mistakes people make from doing this research and it does kind of put things in perspective because you know part of the reason i wanted to do this podcast and why we've started it is because these stories are interesting but they do give us a lesson to learn in that you know you can see the snowball effect starting with some of these people and 
in hindsight, it will teach you a slight lesson. So we don't mean it in a, a necessarily bad way to look down on these people, but they do provide us with lessons. And we are very thankful to the Herb Abrams of this world and the Planet Killers of this world for providing us with these yeah. timely lessons into absolutely terrible decisions. So until next time, um, I've been Lev. Derek, would you like to say goodbye? Goodbye, everyone. Uh, and we shall see you next episode, and I hope you enjoy the launch on April Fool's Day. Goodbye now. <laughs>